Good to have our first-time visitors and old friends with us today. Thankful to have you in attendance with us on the Lord's Day. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of John. As we pick up in John chapter 7 and continue our exposition through John's Gospel. John chapter 7. And we'll focus this morning picking up in verses 14 through 24. Uh, But for the sake of remembering the context, let's begin reading from verse 1 of John 7. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 24. Let us hear the Word of God. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee... For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone, had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters or have learning, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marveled. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Amen. Let us unite our hearts. Let's pray together and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Our God and Father, we thank You this morning for the light of Your Word. It is the light that illuminates our path. Your Word is the only sure, trustworthy guide for eternal life. We thank You for the words of the Lord Jesus. We thank You for His faithfulness to do everything that You gave Him to do in our behalf. We thank You that He is the One who does all things well. That Christ is the One who humbled Himself, becoming a man, and not just a man, but taking the form of a servant that He might lay down His life upon the cross, becoming a curse for us, 
and rising again in victory and triumph, that sinners such as ourselves can be redeemed and reconciled for all eternity. Father, thank You for the Gospel this morning. Thank You for Your eternal love that had no beginning and will have no end. The love which sent Your very own dear Son into this world to be mocked, to be crucified for our sakes. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray You would give us greater measures of Your Holy Spirit. We pray for Him to come and to open up the Scriptures to us. We pray that our hearts would burn within us as we read of the things of Christ, as we read His words, the words of eternal life. Father, grow Your people, strengthen Your church, build us up. We pray that You would bring us from immaturity to maturity, that we would all be being changed from one degree of glory to the next. May we be convicted by Your Word. May we be guided. May we be instructed. May we be empowered by Your Spirit to obey. Father, help us, we pray. We ask that You'd be in our midst. We ask and pray for any who are here this morning who don't know Christ. We pray that through Your Word and by Your Spirit, You would open the eyes of their hearts. That they would see their own sinfulness and their desperate need for Christ. Lord, that they would feel a sense of being undone in Your presence apart from the covering which is found in Christ's blood and righteousness. We pray for Your Spirit to minister to each of our hearts as we each have need. We pray this morning in particular for our people who are in the valleys of affliction and suffering and hardship. Pray that You would draw near to them, pour out the balm of Your grace, encourage their hearts, strengthen their faith. Father, draw near to us, be with us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are again in John chapter 7. As we read from the beginning of this chapter, the context is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, one of the uh, few feasts that God in the Old Testament commanded every male Israelite to attend. And so Jesus has gone privately up to this feast, not in the public way that His brothers sought to get Him to do in order to gain worldly pomp and worldly popularity, but He has gone privately And the crowds are murmuring. The crowds are talking about Him. Where is He? Will He come to the feast? And we come this morning, beginning in verse 14, to the section where Jesus makes His presence publicly known in the temple. And so let's begin our exposition. Then we will move into our uh, doctrine deduced, how we are instructed doctrinally from this passage. And thirdly, we will close with application. But let's begin with our exposition, and it's especially at this point, if you have a Bible, that I would encourage you to have it open so that you can see together with us what God is saying and teaching, to, uh, teaching His people. Picking up in verse 14, John says, Now, uh, at the middle, or about the middle of the feast, this feast was eight days long, so probably the fourth or fifth day, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Okay? Now, we need to understand from the beginning here, this is a provocative move for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's provocative because even though Jesus knows that the rulers and the Pharisees are seeking to kill Him, He still makes a public appearance in the temple showing them that He's not afraid of their threats. And there are few things that rub power-hungry leaders the wrong way like when you defy their authority. But secondly, it's provocative because essentially what's happening here is Jesus is taking their job. They were the ones who were supposed to be teaching the people in the temple. You remember Matthew's Gospel. They are the ones who sit in Moses' seat. And either because they were completely neglecting their duty to teach the people 
or because they were teaching the people as doctrines, the, uh, the traditions of men, Jesus now steps in, the good shepherd, and he begins to instruct the crowds. And unlike chapter 5 and 6, remember chapter 5 and 6 are lengthy uh, John recording uh, the actual content of Jesus' teaching, unlike those chapters, the Holy Spirit's purpose here is not to give us the actual content of what Jesus taught, but rather the effect of that teaching. Verse 15 says, and the Jews, and just a note here to remind us, I pointed this out before, John often uses that term, the Jews, to refer specifically to the group of religious leaders, um, not just the whole body of the Jewish people. And they're often distinguished from either the people or the crowds, as we have in this section. John says, and the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters or have learning? Would be a a more of getting the sense across. How does this man have learning having never studied? Okay, now, I don't think when it says they marveled, I take that as a reference to the Jewish leaders in particular, I don't think John means they marveled in the good sense, like, wow, isn't this just incredible? Isn't this amazing? But rather, I think it's more of a a marveling in the sense of bewilderment and frustration vented among, among themselves. Because without question, and even they cannot deny this, they are listening to a man who is powerful in the Scriptures. He speaks with authority and conviction and sincerity to the point where in verse 46, at the end of, or towards the end of this chapter, the very officers who were sent to capture him say to the, hand, uh, the Sanhedrin, no one ever spoke like this man. And so the, the leaders here are befuddled. Where did he get this from? How does he speak in the way he does? None of our rabbis taught him any of this. And Jesus then, whether they genuinely asked him for a response or not, Jesus answers their question. Verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. He asserts to them that his doctrine is divine doctrine. Remember, he's speaking here as God incarnate. He's he's speaking as mediator. And he's saying to them that his doctrine, first of all, didn't come from human universities or institutions. He didn't learn his doctrine secondhand from man the way that they did. And secondly, he's saying, my doctrine didn't originate with me as a man. That's what he means when he says, uh, my doctrine is not mine. He doesn't mean, obviously, that he doesn't believe what he's saying. It means it doesn't originate with him. But he says, rather, it is the doctrine of him who sent me. Deuteronomy 18.18, one of the more famous passages of the Old Testament in which God promised that he was going to raise up a greater prophet than Moses. God says of that prophet, I will put my words in his mouth. And Jesus will say in John chapter 8, verse 28, As my Father taught me, so I speak these things. Jesus says to them that His doctrine, and notice it's singular. He doesn't say my doctrines. It's interesting that in the the New Testament, often you see doctrines of men, doctrines of demons in the plural, emphasizing the disunity. Jesus here says, my doctrine, singular, my teaching is coextensive with and identical with the very doctrine of God. What I speak to you are the words of my Father. Again, stressing his unity with the Father as he did in chapter 5. And what he's saying is that when he speaks, he is not speaking, his words don't merely carry the weight of human speculation or tradition, or opinion, but rather when he speaks, he is speaking 
the very words of God. And then he speaks next of how they may know that his teaching is from God. So first of all, he asserts it, and now he tells them how they will know that. Verse 17, he says, If anyone wills to do his will, that is, his Father's will, God's will, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, notice, first of all, Christ is willing to have his teaching assessed, whether it be from God or not. But he says here, whether that assessment will lead to the right conclusion depends on the state of the person's will or desire. Notice, he doesn't say, if, one, if anyone thinks carefully enough, he will know whether my doctrine is from God or not. He doesn't say, if anyone has the training of the seminary or the university, he will know whether my teaching is of God or not. Rather, he says, this is how one knows that my doctrine is from God. If his or her will is to do God's will. Very instructive. A.W. Pink said on this text, he said, one does not have to enter seminary and take a course on Christian apologetics in order to obtain an assurance that the Bible is inspired. And then he says this, spiritual intelligence comes not through the intellect, but via the heart. In other words, the state of one's heart and will, our bias, if you will, determines whether we will embrace Christ's doctrine as God's doctrine or not. Not that the intellect is is irrelevant. That's not what Pink is saying. Uh, Faith is not antithetical to thinking. But what we need to understand that Jesus is saying here is our intellect is governed by the heart. Our judgments, our evaluations are biased by the state our heart is in. You remember, some of you who are here might remember at the end of chapter 5, verse 42, the Jews think he's a blasphemer for claiming equality with God. And in verse uh, 42 of chapter 5, Jesus says this to the leaders. He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's basically roughly equivalent with what he says here. Not having a will to do God's will. And what does he say in the very next verse, verse 43? What's the result of them not having the love of God within their heart? He says, I have come to you in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Why? Why is that the case? Is it because that's where the evidence leads? No, it's because that's what the bias of their heart wants. And he says here, you will know that my teaching is from God only if you have a will that is aligned with God's will. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tells us that it is by faith that we understand. It's this line of thought that led Augustine to say, I believe in order to understand. The first step towards right knowledge of God is a heart and a will that is submitted to God and believes God. But he knows that these leaders are not set on doing the will of God. And so verse 18. He says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now, here Christ, this is kind of the end of his defense of his doctrine. Here he is laying out for them the purity of his motives and his his teaching. And he describes it by contrasting it with the imposter. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That is, those who are self-seeking are those who are self-speaking. 
Right? That's the mark of the insincere, the liar, the false prophet. Their objective in their doctrine is to draw attention to themselves. It's about their, um, it serves their own aggrandizement. But Christ says of himself, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Remember chapter 5, verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from men. He's saying the same thing to them. My message centers upon glorifying the Father who sent me, whose very words I am speaking to you. So that, in a sense, concludes his defense of their their question of where does he get his learning. Now Jesus turns the uh, tables. He now goes on the offense against them. So he's, he's already poked them in the eye by assuming their seat as teacher. He has defended his own doctrine and the origin uh, of his doctrine. And now he goes on the offense and he confronts them for their own hypocrisy and wickedly biased hearts. Verse 19, he asks them a question. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, as we read the remainder of this portion, um, I'm sure it became clear, Jesus is now referring back to the event that we saw in chapter 5. The invalid who had been uh, disabled for decades that Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Remember, that was a key issue of that whole interchange. Well, that whole thing, even though months have passed between then and now, that whole thing has not just faded away with time in the leader's mind. It is still simmering in their minds. And they are still seeking to kill him on account of what happened back in chapter 5. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling the leaders on their hypocrisy in a couple different ways. Number one... He's calling them on their hypocrisy, number one, because the very law of Moses that they claim to uphold and the very law they claim to be defending by demanding his blood, he says they don't even keep. Matthew Henry said, this is like when people speak highly of the church but never go to, the, never go to church. These Jewish leaders, they spoke highly of the law, Right? Chapter 5, Jesus says that. You think it's in Moses you have your hope, or on whom you've set your hope. They speak highly of the law, but they don't even observe the law. He says, none of you keeps the law. And so he's first of all exposing their hypocrisy in this sense. Why are you guys not concerned about your own breaking of the law, actual breaking of the law, Whenever it suits you, you just ignore that stuff. But the moment I supposedly break the law by healing a man on the Sabbath, you demand my blood. It's selective, hypocritical application of justice. But secondly, he's also exposing their hypocrisy in this sense. He's exposing how far out of calibration their judgment is in the fact that they are so concerned with the speck in Jesus' eye, and they are completely ignoring the log that's in their own eye. He says to them, why do you seek to kill me? Think about that. Here they are literally trying to kill a man. Because he made a man's whole body well on the Sabbath, And they really think that that supposed breach of the Sabbath is, uh, and of the fourth commandment, they think that's more egregious than their high-handed disregard for the sixth commandment. The way it's working in their mind, whether they're completely conscious or thinking through it or not, or maybe they've just seared their conscience, is we're trying to kill a man for healing on the Sabbath. That's not a big deal. But let's not forget, he healed on the Sabbath, and therefore he's worthy of death. And that's when the people now, the crowds, interrupt and contradict him. Verse 20, 
the people, literally the crowd, answered and said, so they interject, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, granted, it's most likely that these crowds, uh, this crowd genuinely probably didn't have any idea of the murderous intentions of their leaders. And so what they say here, even though it is said in their passion and in ignorance, is probably a, a true reflection of what they really thought. And it shows, number one, their blind allegiance to their rulers. They are, they are absolutely assured our leaders would never try to do this. But secondly, it shows their ill opinion of Christ. You have a demon. That's an, that's an insult. And it's very possible that that was somewhat of a loose phrase that would have just meant something along the lines of, you're insane. You're, you're unstable. And you are frightened by irrational fears. They would, in these days, some of those things would be attributed, attributed to demons. Either way, regardless of whether they're literally saying you're possessed by a demon or whether they're saying you are insane, it is an insult to Christ. It's an unrighteous judgment. We'll open that up in a bit. But he pays no attention to their insult and he rather just goes on to finish, finish the job and he defends his actions to them. Beginning in verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses shall not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Here's what he's doing here. He's using their own practice to expose their own bias and hypocrisy and partiality. He, he asks them, and obviously it's rhetorical, he says to them, if a son in Israel is born on the Sabbath, which would make the next Sabbath the eighth day on which he is to be circumcised, which law do you uphold? Do you uphold the law of circumcision and circumcise him anyway, even though it's the Sabbath? Or do you uphold the law of the Sabbath to do no work or inflict pain, and therefore you break the law of circumcision? And they knew... And he knows perfectly well what the answer is to that. You still circumcise the boy on the Sabbath because it is completely lawful to obey God on the Sabbath and do good on the Sabbath. And he knows they allowed that. They have no problem when from among their own ranks they're breaking the Sabbath, quote-unquote, and he's pointing out to them, you guys don't have a leg to stand on in seeking my life. You are condemned by your own practice and your own standard. And so he, con he concludes in verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Literally, do not judge according to face. It's a phrase that's, that goes back even to the Hebrew idiom in the Old Testament do not judge with respect to persons. Do not judge with partiality. And he's saying, you guys know that this has hypocrisy written all over it. You guys know that you allow for exactly what I have done from among your own ranks, and you don't make any issue of it. But when I exercise the same liberty and perform an even greater work than circumcision on the Sabbath, suddenly you want to kill me. That is unrighteous judgment rooted in sinful bias and hatred. So, that concludes our exposition of, of the text itself. Let's move in secondly to our doctrine deduced. That is, how are we instructed now doctrinally from this text about particularly this morning, the Christian life and life in the church. And then thirdly, we'll close with our application. So uh, our doctrine section. Doctrinally, I want to I open up two things this morning for us from this pa passage. And 
both of them are practical in the church, but I want to base our application section on the second one. So the first one here is a bit briefer. The second one is a bit more expanded. Two things this morning, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, first way that we're instructed by this text is we are taught here that formal education, like seminary and university and degrees and things like that, are not absolutely necessary to effectively handle the Scriptures. Okay? Formal training, like seminary, universities, degrees, are not absolutely necessary to effectively handle the Scriptures. They proclaim with confusion and marveling, how does this man have learning having never studied? And when they say he's never studied, what they mean is he's never gone through the school of Rabbi so-and-so. Now, I want to be clear from the beginning. Notice what I'm not saying. I did not say that formal training, like those things, seminary, you name it, I did not say that those things cannot be of great use and help. Okay? But what I am saying is they are not the determining factor in whether a man, particularly for office in the church, or a woman in other areas of ministry in her life, those things are not the determining factor whether someone can be rightly and well-equipped to handle the Word of God. Unlike the Apostle Paul, who you remember pretty much had all the pedigree in the world in terms of his Jewish pedigree and training, unlike Paul, the Lord Jesus does not hail from any man-made school. He brings with Him no summa cum laude degree. He has no letters behind His name, and yet He opened up the Scriptures in such a way that caused even His enemies to say, no one ever spoke like this man. Literally, His teaching and preaching were with such power and authority and conviction that it was beyond anything anyone in that day had ever heard. And in fact, I believe that it's the Lord's providence as an example to us that God ordained that the Lord Jesus Christ came with no human learning behind His name so that it would be made plain to us that true knowledge comes not from men, but from God. And Paul demonstrates that, doesn't he? Paul is kind of the contrast of that. With all Paul's pedigree and his degrees, so to speak, he was a student at the feet of Gamaliel. And yet Paul, after he gets converted, he looks back on all that and he says, I count all that as loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And Paul is essentially saying, even though I far excelled the learning of most of my fellow kinsmen, I was a fool before I was taught by this rabbi, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, I'm a firm believer in this. And to be, to be honest, as Baptists, we've kind of always been more, more towards this bent Less of an emphasis on clericalism, if you will. Less of an emphasis on, on formal degrees. Not that those things are bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But less of, an educa uh, less of an emphasis on necessarily how one gets the training that they have. And more of a focus on looking rather for men who by the teaching of the Holy Spirit and through the study of the Word of God bleed Bible when you prick them. It is ultimately the Holy Spirit through the study of the Scriptures that makes a man mighty in true knowledge. We know that because how many people are graduates of seminaries who you listen to their pulpit ministry and you realize they might have a lot of knowledge in one sense, but they don't actually have true knowledge. True knowledge comes by the Holy Spirit through the study of the Scriptures, filling a man, particularly for office I'm talking about here, 
filling a man with a knowledge of the Scriptures and a knowledge of God so that he can effectively and powerfully communicate God's Word. And honestly, give us that, and it does not matter what the man lacks in terms of the opinions of the world. Give us that, and the church will be well-fed and well-shepherded and well-pastored. In fact, there's even a sense in which when a man, a minister doesn't have the, the degrees that the world would look upon as great, there's a sense in which he even more uh, makes foolish the wisdom of the world and shames the wisdom of the world. Because how does this man have learning having never studied? And it's because he knows God. And he knows God sincerely and he knows God deeply because he has drunk deeply from the Scriptures and he's meditated on the Scriptures and he has a heart and a will that is to do the will of God and therefore the man is like a walking Bible. He's like a fountain of wisdom. Like Spurgeon and Bunyan. You, you probably know the story. Uh, it's very uh, common story told. Um, Owen, John Owen, who was, I mean, I don't, maybe this is hyperbole, but I don't think it's that far off. John Owen was probably among one of the highest educated men ever to live. And don't get me wrong, God blessed John Owen's ministry in, in its own right, in its own way. But Bunyan, the tinker, who preached to people in fields, absolutely no accreditation from all the big, you know, I mean, he's a Baptist, so back then, people especially didn't like Baptists. Um, And Owen said, they were contemporaries, Owen said of, of Bunyan, I would gladly relinquish all my learning if I could affect hearts the way Bunyan does. And first of all, that's a man of humility. Owen knew that his education didn't equal power in the pulpit, necessarily. But it's also a testimony, testimony coming from one of the most educated men that God can and does use uneducated people in great ways. And, Christian, I would simply say this. I'm not going to apply this. I'm not going to have its own section in the application, so I'll, I'll apply it briefly here. Christian, I would say this. Whether you're here and you're a man who aspires to be a preacher or a pastor... Or whether you're just a a church member who wants to do your part in recognizing qualified pastors, let's not make the bar something that even Christ himself wouldn't qualify for. We want men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Does not matter whether he has a degree to back that up. Those whose will is to do the will of God will know whether his teaching comes from God or not. That's the first thing, first point of doctrine. It brings us to the second thing this morning. Second point of instruction, point of doctrine, and sorry, this is one of those lengthier ones. We are warned in this passage by the Jews' negative example and positively instructed by Jesus, here's the main point, to always judge with consistency honesty, and according to fairness. Okay? So we're warned by the negative example of the Jews, and we are commanded and instructed positively by Jesus' statement in verse 24 that the Christian is always to judge with consistency, honesty, and according to fairness. These leaders and crowds altogether are guilty of what Jesus calls unrighteous judgment. Their wills are not set to do the will of God, and therefore they hastily and unfairly and maliciously dismiss and discredit Jesus in various ways. And I want to open up in this section, before we move to application, just looking at these verses again briefly, I want to open up three ugly fruits of how their sinful bias leads them to judge Jesus unrighteously. 
And we will, Lord willing, open up more of these. It's amazing how the theme of the political, I don't know what you call it, the leaders acting more like politicians than spiritual men. It's amazing how that theme really in many ways comes to a head in John 7. And we'll see it more in chapter 9 uh, throughout the rest of the gospel. But all that to say, we'll open up more of these probably in weeks to come. But this morning I want to give you three that we see here. Three ugly fruits of how their sinful bias against Christ leads them to judge Him unrighteously. Number one, their bias causes them to dismiss Christ on account of His lack of human credentials. Okay? How does this man have learning having never studied? Now, I understand how at the beginning, if that's all we had, you might just assume that that's more or less uh, uh, an innocent question, an innocent comment. But taking into consideration the rest of the chapter, we get a different picture and a fuller picture. For instance, uh, glance down to verse 45. The officer... uh, The leaders have sent officers to arrest Christ. They're stopped in their tracks because this man speaks in a way we've never heard. And so they return empty-handed. Verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in Him? But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. And, more than that, three verses later, I think in verse 52, when Nicodemus even challenges them, you know, does our law condemn a man before it hears him? Their response to Nicodemus is, are you from Galilee too? Galilee was basically the equivalent, in their mind, of the land of the hillbillies. The uneducated. Farm folk, right? Um, There's this underlying bias throughout this chapter of Jesus is uneducated. The crowds are uneducated. We are educated. Therefore, he doesn't deserve a hearing. That's a very common judgment. It's the logical fallacy of appealing to an authority for why something is right, and if you don't have that authority, it can't be trusted. You don't have the seminary education I do. You don't have the training that I do. You don't have the intellectual bandwidth that I do. And therefore... You can't be right, and you should just understand your place. Is essentially what they're doing to him here. That's the first thing. First way that their bias leads them to unrighteously judge him. Secondly, they seek to discredit Jesus by undermining his perception of reality. Notice the statement of the crowds. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They're, they're essentially saying... You're, in, you're insane. You're like a hypochondriac who is irrationally afraid of things that no sane person would be afraid of. Our leaders would never seek to kill you. And what that does is it casts doubt on the person of, well, if he's this off base in this, can we really even believe a single word he says? When in fact, we know that the leaders were trying to kill him. He wasn't insane. He's not making up irrational fears. He's the one who's actually speaking the truth. But they bring into question his perception of reality and notice the leaders let it stand. It's not like the leaders corrected the crowds at this point and said, well, no, actually he has a pretty good point there when he says that we're trying to kill him. That doesn't serve their purpose, which again, bias, right? Not walking in honesty and integrity. Because that's a very convenient way to undermine someone's credibility so that they can just dismiss whatever he says. That brings us to the third thing. The third way that their bias leads them to judge unrighteously. Thirdly, their sinful bias leads them to use hypocritical weights and measures in order to discredit Christ. 
I'm going to be brief here. Just think about what these leaders are doing. They know in their own conscience that they are condemned according to their own practice. They know that they have no problem circumcising a male child on the eighth day when it falls on the Sabbath. And they know that they don't pick up stones to go and stone those Sabbath breakers. But with Christ, because they hate Him, they willfully judge Him by a standard that they themselves violate. And indeed, to the extent that they demand His very life for it. This is like a David moment. Right? What does David do when he hears what Nathan told him? This man has done. David says, the man who has done these things deserves to die. And Nathan has to say to him, David, you are the man. This is what sinful bias does to us. It drives us to unequal and hypocritical weights and measures. It makes us blind to our own hypocrisy and faults and makes us find faults in others where faults don't even exist. So that concludes our doctrine. Let's move into our closing section of application. What are the uses of this text for us practically Christian? As I said, I, I, I'm going to leave the first point of doctrine. Um, maybe another time we can open that up. I want to focus on the second point and apply this concept of judging with righteous judgment to us as, as a church. This is very instructive for us. I wish that we had 30 minutes to go here I don't, unfortunately, so I had to be very selective, and maybe, Lord willing, we can open up more of these things another time. In the Christian's practice, in his beliefs, in his investigations and evaluations, we are to do all things at all times with a righteous judgment. That is, with a careful, consistent, impartial inquiry into the truth. We owe that to our friends. We owe that to our brothers and our sisters, and we owe that even to our enemies. And Christian, let me say, if you think that this isn't relevant for you, you should probably think again. <laughs> because we all, even if we're not conscious of it, and actually probably some of the danger with this is we're probably not aware of it and conscious of it, we all are guilty of making unrighteous judgments about things because of our bias. And that bias can manifest itself in a whole plethora of ways. I want to give you two areas this morning. And this is what I mean. I had to be selective. Area number one. How about when evaluating theological views? Okay? How about when evaluating theological views? How do we go about that? How ought we to go about that? We all... For one reason or another, we all have assumptions about what we believe to be true. And when we hear something that challenges those assumptions, what is our gut reaction? That can't be true. That can't be right. And we're already, even before we've heard it, we're already so positive that we're in the right. Okay? So, Take Calvinism, for example. And I say Calvinism just because that's, that's a common, common thing people wrestle through. Okay? I can't tell you... And by the way, I'm going to turn the tables on us in just a second here. Okay? So please don't take this as, yeah, go after, the, go after the Arminians. I can't tell you, though, and this is not unique to Calvinism and people have... It's true of everything that we disagree with. But I can't tell you how many times I've had people already disgusted with what Calvinism is even before they have understood what Calvinism is. And they've got a gut reaction bias. <laughs> well, if you believe that, then you must also believe this, and that is a monstrous belief. And... You just kind of want to back them up for a second and say, well, no, I actually don't believe that. And if you would have asked, I actually would have been happy to tell you what I actually really do believe. 
That's the kind of hasty judgment the crowds are guilty of here. You have a demon. Who, Who is seeking to kill you? Right? What happened to the proverb that he who judges a matter before he hears it is a fool? What they should have done is inquired with Jesus. Why do you say that they're seeking to kill you? Why are you persuaded of that? Why are you convinced of that? But instead, they just make a gut reaction judgment without actually inquiring into the the matter, and therefore they dismiss him. Or, here's another, still sticking with the Calvinism example, here's a different kind of unrighteous judgment people can make. Well, didn't Calvin burn heretics at the stake? And do we really want to base our doctrine on a guy like that? First of all, there's a lot of nuance that needs to be said regarding what Calvin did or did not do. But that's besides the point. Even if Calvin was guilty of that and even worse things, that doesn't make him wrong theologically. You, You can't reject a position on the basis that, well, this person held it and therefore it's wrong. I mean, what what does that have to do with whether Calvin got it right on predestination? I'm pretty sure Darwin and Hitler believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, and we're not just jettisoning that on their account. But it feels so good, doesn't it, to our flesh? Of, you know what? I don't even care if this is a relevant argument. (laughs) I don't even care if this is fair. I'm just going to throw it out there because it makes me feel better that I'm right. Right? Or I'm just going to hit enter on the keyboard here. I'm going to drop that bomb. And it doesn't matter if it's fair. I got it out there. And it's going to get applause from my team. And people are going to rally around me. And it's going to get us some points, regardless of whether it's even valid. That's unrighteous. But here's where I turn the tables on us. Brothers and sisters, we do it too. And I hope as I say all that about the person who opposes Calvinism, I hope you understand most of my intent there is hopefully you're thinking about things that you're guilty of and how you have responded those those ways. Brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. Oh, that guy? That guy's an Arminian. Or he's, he's a charismatic. And so I'm just going to not listen to a word he says. Or that guy, he didn't even go to seminary. Or his seminary's liberal or what, whatever. Or, well, that guy, but remember, he goes to that church. What, Arminians? And yes, even charismatics can't have the Holy Spirit and can't ever have good insight on anything? non-seminarians just never get a hearing? That's unrighteous judgment. And think about it, it's not very different from the elitism of these Pharisees. Well, have any of the, Fer- have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? That's basically what we're saying. Have any Calvinists held that position? I mean, have any real Reformed Baptists believed that? Or my favorite, oh, well, Doug Wilson believes it, and so it must be wrong, right? I'm glad more people understood that than I anticipated. We, the point is, we do that. I've done that. This has made me search my own heart about the way I just, out of hand, just kind of, eh, why? Why bother with that guy? He, he has this position, or he's done this in his past. Um, We dismiss people and their views based on things that are not necessarily valid reasons to dismiss them. Now, I'm not saying there aren't valid reasons to dismiss a person. I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, everyone's just as good as everyone else, and so, you know, don't read them with carefulness. It's not what I'm saying. But everyone deserves to be treated on the merit of their own words as to whether this particular teaching is of God or not. And someone can be right in one area and wrong in another But just because they're wrong in this one, and maybe you feel really strong about that, 
does not mean that they're wrong in everything. Okay, that's the first area, doctrinal... Um, can't remember what I called that point, so you, you hopefully wrote it down. In, on the issue of how we evaluate doctrine. A second area, and we'll, we'll close with this. A second area. This also applies, this principle of judge with righteous judgment, not according to face or partiality, applies to how we evaluate people and situations. Okay? And like I already said, this is something we could open up in a thousand different directions in terms of application. And so I have to be very selective. When the need arises, and the need will arise, for us to make evaluations and judgments on things like people's character or disputes between two people or more, we need to be impartial no matter who is involved. Now, I'm going to give you a few examples just to give you a taste. Lord willing, we can open these up more at another time. I'll give you a few examples. Number one, Let's say a dispute arises between you and your really close Christian friend. Basically, your best friend. A dispute arises between your best friend and their spouse. Okay, so sorry if I said that wrong. The dispute's not between you and your friend. The dispute is between your best friend and their spouse. And they come to you and they want your help. What are you going to have to be really careful to guard against in that interaction? you're going to have to be really careful to guard against the assumption that my best friend is the saint here and the angel, and it's really their spouse who's just the root of all the problems. But that's naturally, that's what we want to do. But the reality is, your best friend might actually have their fair share of contribution to the circumstance. And you're not allowed to just turn a blind eye to that because, you're their, because they're your friend. In fact, you're not even being a good friend to them or their spouse if you do that. So there's bias like that we have to be aware of. Relational, you know, who we're close to, who we're friends with. That's why Paul says to Timothy, do these things without partiality. Um, I'll give you another example where judgment requires restraint and carefulness. And I say that it requires restraint and carefulness because this is an area where I have had to learn my own hard lessons in this regard of prejudging a matter. Okay, so here's the, exam- here's the situation. Let's say a dispute arises between two people in the church and you know that one of the people involved already doesn't have that great of a track record. Okay, let's just say they struggle with anger. And, and you know that just because of previous relationship with them. You've helped them before. You know they have, as a Christian, maybe they've shared with you, outbursts of anger are something that I struggle with. Okay? So a dispute arises between that person and another person. And the other person who doesn't have the same track record comes to you first... And they say, hey, there was a big blow-up between me and -and so-and-so. Can you help us? What's the first thought that's going to pop into your head? Probably, here we go again. So-and-so's anger has gotten out of control yet again. Before you've even heard from so-and-so. And you've already concluded in your mind who the guilty party is. Now, I understand that. Part of that is because of the track record. And the other part is because they came to you first, the other person, and, you know, the person who gives this case seems right until another comes and examines it. But is that righteous judgment? To just assume it's got to be the same old, same old patterns of this person again. No. Let, let me ask this. Do track records and patterns matter? Yes. Right? It would be naive to just act like, no, it's totally outside the realm of possibility that this person who has a track record of struggling with anger actually got angry. That would would be naive. 
But here's the thing. We also are forbidden from just condemning our brother without hearing the matter. Just because he's done this in the past doesn't mean that that's what happened this time. And it's actually possible that that brother or sister has grown and that it actually wasn't them who lost their temper and that it was actually the other person who was the main contributor. But the, the point in this anal- uh, illustration is regardless of a person's track record, and I'm not saying we put on blinders to track records, but regardless, we still owe them the courtesy of evaluating each situation on its own merit. One last example. One last example. Especially, okay, and I mean, I'll, I'll just point out the elephant in the room. Yes, this application comes out of the own furnace of my own affliction of controversy that I've recently been, been involved with. Um, if you don't know what that's about, you don't need to bother yourself with it. But just so no one thinks, yeah, he's hijacking the sermon just to talk about this. But nonetheless, the Lord has taught me things that I've reflected on. And I think that this is an important encouragement slash instruction slash warning to you as a congregation. Especially when it comes to disputes between members and their pastors, we have to be careful to judge with righteous judgment. And here's the reason that can be so difficult. Is because in an ideal church situation, members should trust their pastors, right? That's what we want. We don't want a church where it's just the relationship between the congregation and its pastors is just one of distrust. However, trusting your pastors, if it's not also mixed with proper accountability, it can also lead to unrighteous judgment. And what I mean is this. If an occasion ever arose here at Bethany between a member and, and a member had a grievance against his pastor or pastors, a congregation's trust, if it's blind trust, their trust of their pastors can lead them to blind, blindly believe the side of the pastors simply because there are pastors and not give the member the same privilege of an unbiased hearing. Now, pastors obviously have a reasonable amount of influence with their people, and that can be good, but it can also be abused. And that means pastors can tell a story the way they want to, and everyone hangs on their words because it's the pastor's words. And they give careful attention to everything the pastors say. But what can happen is that no one or very few think it's even worth their time to give the member the same courtesy that they gave the pastors. Christian, this rule of judge with righteous judgment applies to everyone. Everyone deserves righteous judgment. They deserve fair judgment, godly judgment, careful judgment. Deuteronomy one seventeen. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. And you shall be afraid in no man's presence. Christian, these crowds here did not give that to Christ. And it was this very sinful bias that will in just a short time from where we're at now, lead to them crucifying the Lord of glory. And Christ will willingly give Himself the just who always judges righteously for the unjust to save and to sin the very types of people who murdered Him in the first place. Christian, may we in response to the Gospel in response to Christ's righteousness for us in our place, His example to us, and the instruction of His Word, may we follow not in the footsteps of the world with wicked bias and unrighteous judgment, but may we follow carefully in the footsteps of Christ and to live and walk in righteous judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your mercies to us. We pray that You would 
Write your word upon our hearts. Help us to be instructed by your word. Father, teach us, all of us in the inward man, that we would be careful to keep your precepts. We thank you for Christ. He is the only reason that we can even begin to obey. We thank you for the grace of the gospel by the Spirit who enables us to have power to live for your glory. We pray that we would be warned by by the negative example of these crowds. Father, keep us far from unrighteous judgment, unfair treatment and dismissal. Help us to be fair. Help us to be godly with everyone, with our friends, our brothers, and our enemies. Expose, Lord, in our own lives, our own consistencies that we're unaware of. We know we have them, but we do not know where they are. We pray that You'd be gracious to expose those things so that we can grow and change. Father, we pray that You would now draw near to us at the Lord's table. We pray that we would commune with Christ with sincere joy and thankfulness for Your Word and the good news that Your Word brings to us. Thank you for Christ. Be with us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.